Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. Mayor Rick Langiardi and the Honolulu Board of Water Supply Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and Governor David Ige had been tentatively set to meet at 8.30 this morning. They were going to talk about Red Hill to make sure Oahu residents have access to clean drinking water. But that meeting has been now put off till later this week. But the mayor expressed some concern about the talk of a water moratorium and what that might mean for our economy. I'm concerned about sending a message out to the development community. I think right now I'm a little bit concerned that that might be a little bit of an overreach as we determine what we can do. I think first and foremost, everything is tied to the safety and well-being of our people here and making sure they have pure, clean drinking water and we can do that. What we're talking about is the extension of the pumps since we've had to shut some stuff down and what that could do to development. I think that's premature to make that call. I want to be really clear about that. There are a lot of technical aspects to that. I don't know if we're totally there yet, but nobody's going to do anything at any time that jeopardizes drinking water. We just want to be sure we can get the amount of drinking water we have to as it relates to the development. And I don't want to, I don't want to, because we have such a, we have another crisis. Our housing crisis, hesitant to use that word because we've just been living in the midst of one for two years. It's been everybody's worst nightmare with COVID. But the fact is, we all know, you can use fancy words, you can say shortages or whatever else. The fact is, it's a crisis, and we've got to be able to look at things that we want to be able to do in developing to provide housing for people. And so this is one of those things, again, where we're not doing anything to take away from the integrity of clean water. It's about the delivery of the water systems. And that part, that part right now is still being worked on. That was uh, Mayor Rick Blangiardi. And Senator Jarrett Kyoho Kalole echoed some of the mayor's concerns following a briefing with Ernie Lau last week. The Windward Oahu legislator talked with us this morning about his fears. I think the whole situation is deeply concerning. I think the mayor's concerns are well-founded. And it's difficult at this point to know how we get to a resolution. Based on what you heard Ernie Lau tell the committee, what sticks with you? You know, it seems like the Board of Water Supply has a very well-thought-out process for dealing with water conservation up until the point where they might need to issue a moratorium. And then once we get to that point, I think there are a lot of questions as to what happens and how they're going to facilitate those you know, really extreme steps. So that's part of what the letter was about. Everything we've heard from the Board of Water Supply to this point leads us to expect that at some point or another, they might have to seriously consider a moratorium on new water meters. That's how bad the situation is. I do think that there are a number of steps that need to happen before we get there. But if we ever do cross that line, there are a lot of unanswered questions about how we proceed going forward. And the building trades are obviously concerned, you know, because construction was, you know, one leg of the stool that kept us going during this pandemic. There are worries about what this might mean for our economic recovery. Yeah, you know, they should be concerned. Like I said, we have no choice at this point but to take the Board of Water Supply at their word. And they have been, you know, short of screaming from the mountaintops here for a number of months that we are in a serious situation, made worse by the fact that they reported to us last week that Honolulu, Gillingham well seems to be overtaxed. So this is a serious situation. I know the board has asked the governor to step in and take action, 
we have been meeting with the different departments, the Department of Health, and speaking with the Water Commission about accelerating the whatever processes the Board of Water Supply needs to go through to do their exploratory well and new well development. And like I said multiple times, I think it's time for the Navy to drop their lawsuits so that we can all get together in a more amicable setting and try and work together to figure out a solution on this. You know, if we're not going to know whether the aquifer is significantly contaminated for some time, then what are the intermediate steps that we should be taking right now to try and accelerate new well development? So there are a lot of unanswered questions, and I think there is cause for concern. Ernie Lau has shared that, yeah, it does take years to get, you know, a new well in place. That's the whole effort behind asking the governor to expedite the situation. Have you heard anything from the Navy as to what it's doing to help conserve water on its end? You know, I haven't, and that's a good question. We are trying, I have been uh, in discussions with the Navy representatives about going back out to Red Hill and getting an update on the Red Hill shaft remediation and monitoring plan, which is basically their, their well pumping plan. You know, there was an article in Civil Beat, I think this morning or yesterday, about, you know, uncertainty around broader aquifer contamination. And so the first, the most immediate question for the Navy is, is their plan working? Is, is their plan reaching the objectives they set out to achieve when they were initially permitted? Is the Department of Health pushing as much as they can? And do they have a, a good handle on the situation? So that's one piece of it. And then the, the other piece is, is the Board of Water Supply doing everything they can do at this point to forestall more conservation measures or efficiency measures in place? What's the status of of their well capability and their existing well capability. They had some wells down for maintenance and repair. There were other system efficiencies that I think they indicated can be taken in order to conserve more water. And then at what point do we need to take more aggressive conservation steps short of a water meter moratorium? And then the last piece, like I said, is we need to have a broader dialogue about, you know, if we do cross that, to me, that's a red line. And if we do cross it, how do we manage that? And can we manage it in a way that's going to benefit the residents who are likely to feel the worst effects of a moratorium like that in a way that's fair and equitable and that we can have a dialogue on right now before we see that drastic escalation? The Board of Water Supply has reached out to big users, you know, the hospitals, the hotels, but, you know, there's only so much they can do to limit their water use because some of that is, you know, health and safety. But it just sounds like we've got to really make a concerted effort to minimize our water use at this point so we don't get to that moratorium stage. Right. And and, and this isn't just going to be on the big users. You know, everyone can help out by taking a little bit shorter showers or consuming a little bit less than they normally would, those community-wide efforts really do have a large impact, is my understanding. But if we're looking at a multi-year situation here, then we do have to start having this broader dialogue about what these different phase steps are, you know, of escalating conservation measures. And like I said, once, you know, if we ever get to this moratorium situation, what does that look like and how will that be managed? I happen to believe that if we get to that situation, we need to prioritize affordable housing development and development that's going to impact the, the folks who are going to be most significantly hurt by this situation. 
overbuilding more hotels and, and luxury developments. It's not necessarily going to be that simple, but we would like to make that clear now at the outset before we get to that point. And that's what the letter was for. My hope is that this doesn't turn into a conflict situation. Everyone understands what's going on. Everyone's trying to do the best they can. But I think it is time for us to start having these broader conversations. We cannot just keep allowing Ernie to speak out into the, into the universe and then hope that you know, a solution falls into our lap. That's, mm-hmm. We can't do that. Yeah, I, I did reach out to uh, PRP, the Carpenters. I've not heard back. I've talked to uh, David Arakawa over at LERF. I know he said they've invited Ernie to, to come in and talk with them because uh, uh, he was saying that uh, some of their clients were uh, already getting letters and were really worried about, you know, their projects. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll continue to follow this. And when have you asked for another tour? Has the military gotten back to you on an update? We did have a discussion with them last week, so mm-hmm. I will um, hopefully nail something down this week. We'll see. Okay. Yeah, they, they did. I've been asking for someone to talk about the conservation piece as well on the military side. I mean, they said that they, they cut back on some irrigation earlier this year, but, yeah, they've yet to respond to that. Well, you know, the Navy has their own system, but they are drawing from the same aquifer. It's unclear to me whether they're, they will need to pursue immediate conservation measures on their own system. And then ultimately, you know, in the long run, if they're operating at capacity on their system, you know, it's unclear to me at this point without asking Ernie what sort of impact that that will actually have on the Board of Water Supply system. That was Senator Jared Kyoho Kalole, head of the Senate Health Committee. He wrote a letter to the Board of Water Supply urging affordable housing projects be given a priority if a moratorium on new development is enacted due to a, a water situation. A list of about 30 lawmakers have signed on to that letter. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. You are back with The Conversation, and joining us for today's Reality Check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra with more coverage on the Red Hill issue. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good to be here. Yes, yeah, so uh, there are a number of... Uh, uh, scientists out there, you know, hydrologists, geologists that have been looking at this Red Hill dilemma. Uh, What did you find? So basically what we know is that there's pollution in the groundwater in the aquifer under the Red Hill fuel facility. What is unclear, even to the experts uh, who study this, is where it is exactly, how bad it is, and where it's going. Groundwater um, moves, <laughs> um, generally from Malka to Mackay, um, but there's all of these like barriers in the geology of the aquifer that can kind of make it go a certain way, potentially towards our civilian wells, um, but it's just really unclear right now the path that the water and the contamination would take and how quickly it would take for it to get towards something like the Halava shaft, which is um, was uh, civilians, one of our, our, our best water sources before all of this happened. 
Yeah, and the University of Hawaii Water Resource Research Center, I know, has been uh, hosting a number of uh, seminars online um, with some of these scientists. Um, and, it, yeah, it, it really is, is evident that they are working with different theories and models. It's just n- not real clear, w- you know, where this stuff is migrating. Right. What they've said is that it's just incredibly complex underground. Um, you know, it's not just, you know, we think of the aquifer as water being stored in the holes of the porous lava rock, but it's very dynamic, they say, like just a few meters apart, the the landscape, the landscape could be completely different than it was a few meters away. So um, they're trying to gain an understanding of this. You know, it's it's illuminating to learn all of this now, um, given how long we've known of the threat of the Red Hill Fuel Facility being located just 100 feet above our groundwater. Um, you know, you would hope that we would we'd know more at this point, but um, it turns out there's still a lot to learn about how the groundwater flows and how contamination would move. Um, but it really does have critical implications for next steps, you know, whether the border water supply ever reopens the Halava shaft that provided 20% of the water supply for this region of the island, um, and along with their other two wells, whether those will ever be reopened is, um, is a big question and possibly could be answered with more study of the groundwater flow. Yeah, I mean, that that is a scary thought. And the military has their experts that are working on this. Um, but yeah, maybe not all the ex- experts agree. Yeah, there's a lot of debate. And two years ago, the Navy was required to submit a groundwater flow model report, um, which basically is their best guess as to how the water would flow. Um, and just recently, regulators with the Department of Health and EPA rejected the Navy's uh theory, for lack of a better word. Um, they said that their their hypotheses were not matching up with conditions in the field. So they've sent them back to the drawing board, and they're supposed to get back to regulators with, you know, updated models as to how the water uh, flows. So it's, science is slow, <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully, you know, everyone's working as quickly as they can to, to figure this out. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we are uh, just coming through a very dry period, uh, and there is, you know, lots of concern about getting into the hotter summer months and the rest of the year. I know the Board of Water Supply just kicked off their campaign to detect a leak and doing all these things to make sure that people are mindful of not wasting our resource. Right, definitely. As, you know, scientists are doing their best to respond to this crisis. In the meantime, the reality is we just have fewer wells to work with. So everyone is encouraged to be mindful of their water usage. You know, don't water your lawn um, at the hottest point of the day. Be mindful of not letting your faucet run. Um, You know, this is a precious resource and it is limited. So keep that in mind. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. To read the full story, go to civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR local reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to create a movement through the change framework to help Hawaii communities solve challenges and thrive. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change to join the movement. You are listening to The Conversation. And, you know, on the show, we often open our phone lines to talk about an issue. Recently, we dug deep to explore the history of the military's Red Hill underground fuel storage tanks. We talked to two men who researched and wrote the report that got the secret underground project designated as a civil engineering landmark. Jim Gammon worked as superintendent and general engineer for the project for nearly two and a half decades, and Jim Murray worked for the military for 30 years before retiring as the public affairs officer and editor. We begin with Jim Gammon. The first bulk fuel storage, which are the tanks that were scattered around Pearl Harbor, were constructed in 1923 and 22. So we are at the 100th anniversary of bulk fuel storage at Pearl Harbor. Before that, it was a coaling station. It wasn't until the 40s that above-ground tanks were replaced with the underground storage of Red Hill. You know, it is interesting, the juxtaposition of where we're at with Red Hill now and it's it being in the headlines and so open about what's going on because we've got issues in Europe uh, and in Asia, across the Pacific. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Jim Murray, what are your thoughts? You know, where it was such a big secret with the underground tanks and today, you know, there's just so much information that's available and out there. Because this was, you know, declared a landmark civil engineering feat. And, and you helped to put together that application. Talk about the research that you had to do. Uh, yeah, it was extensive research. Um, it probably took us six months to a year to, to write that to the satisfaction of the reviewing committee. And Jim Gammon helped a lot with me and uh, another fellow, Bob Martin, he also contributed and yeah, it was a heck of a lot of work, but uh, we finally got the application done, and it was accepted by the American Society of Civil Engineers and uh, designated a National Historic Civil Engineering Landmark, and that put it on par with places like the Hoover Dam, other places that have been considered uh, National ASCE Landmarks, the Golden Gate Bridge, Washington Monument, Mormon Tabernacle, uh, I could go on and on, even the Panama Canal. So the Red Hill Underground now finds itself in very good company. And Jim Gammon, talk about you know how long you folks prepared to submit this, because this was a, a secret project, and it wasn't until the 90s that they decided, look, this was something worth sharing because it was so monumental. Well... I was told that it was a secret project, and there were certain aspects of the job that were classified. And, in fact, I went looking for a drawing one day, and it turned out to be in a locked vault up at the Pacific Division of NAFAC. That drawing was later declassified. I think it had to do with how Hawaiian Electric got the electricity into Red Hill. You know, the workers who were there in the early 40s were told, you're working at a classified or secret facility, and you're not to tell anybody about this. And back then, people lived by the axiom that loose lips sink ships, and they didn't tell anybody. When we got designated as a National Historic Engineering Landmark by the American Society of Civil Engineers, uh, at first, the ASCE thought, well, we'll just come out to the CEO's office and 
we'll have a handshake and give him a plaque. Our CEO at the time said, nothing doing. We're going to have a party, and we're going to invite everybody we can find who had anything to do with the construction of this facility because the people who did that construction never received any acclamation for what they did working on an extremely dangerous project. And so it fell to me and Jim to try and find these guys who were scattered to the four corners of the globe. I had two CDs with just about every telephone number in the United States. And if a guy had an unusual name, I was able sometimes to uh, get a hit and uh, would call him up, tell him who I was and what I was about. And invariably, I was met with dead silence. Here's somebody calling me up 50 years after I worked at Pearl Harbor and asking about something I was told never to say anything about. I shouldn't be talking to him about this. Well, I would go on and on and on and tell him it was no longer secret, no longer classified and so forth. And eventually they came around. And thanks to Jim's work and what I was able to find, we were able to bring, I think, it was about five or 600 people. Probably about half of them were from, from the islands, and the other half came from the mainland, and some of them were families of Red Hill workers who had passed away, who had heard their relatives, their father, grandfather talk about it, but it was so unusual, such an unusual job. They really didn't have a concept of what it was like, the shape of the tank and the size of the tank. And so we rigged up a clean tank. It was set up so that people on wheelchairs could roll in. I would stand out at the center of the tank and watch particularly the relatives of the Red Hillers walk into the tank, and you could just see light bulbs come on in their face. And finally, they, they understood what Dad or Grandpa had worked on all those years, and they couldn't believe the size of it. It was a revelation for them. Yeah, there was one fellow at the ceremony, Philip Genovese of Connecticut, and uh, he said the moment he walked into the tunnel for the first time in, you know, 50 or so years, he said he could uh, instantly hear the thunderous crescendo of a hundred jackhammers. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat when you figure how it must have sounded down there when they were working. Yeah, sounded and smelled, you know, and I was uh, doing some research online and found a, a Navy film it was produced by the military and it was found on a blog by Admiral J.C. Harvey. Kind of shapes the design of Red Hill. Red Hill. Originally, the plan was to tunnel out four large horizontal tanks. Red Hill was large enough to allow for these tanks with plenty of room for expansion. One evening during dinner at the Halakulani Hotel, George Yeomans, the project manager, and James Groden, the consultant, were discussing the project. When Groden brought up an idea he had been mulling over, what if the tanks were vertical instead of horizontal? Quickly sketching his idea on a cocktail napkin, Groden proposed a series of tanks lined up like enormous underground wells. The big advantage to this scheme was obvious to both men. When tunneling horizontally, the excavated material must be loaded into trucks, hauled to an adit, the mine entrance, and transferred for disposal. With the tanks in a vertical position, a center shaft could be used as a waste chute down to a conveyor belt to whisk the material to the disposal area. 
Soon, cables were moving back and forth between Hawaii and Washington. There, Admiral Ben Morrell gave the go-ahead. The plan was simple, yet audacious, to build 20 tanks vertically underground. Tanks had been built underground before, but usually horizontally. These would be huge, 250 feet high and 100 feet in diameter. They would look like giant capsules standing on end, though they would never be seen. Yeah, never be seen. And uh, I just was struck my first visit in one of those tanks and peering over the the railing. And, yeah, your heart just kind of drops <laughs> because it's a long way down. It's like 20 stories high. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, Jim Gammon, talk about that, you know, the design, you know, sketched on a napkin. It, it, it's just amazing. Well, I think that's probably a true story. A little background on the men involved. George Yeomans was the head guy for Morrison Knutson. It was a big construction company based in Boise, Idaho. Their claim to fame was they're the company that built Boulder Dam. So they were used to huge projects that involved a lot of reinforced concrete. Uh, James Grodin was a consultant. He was actually consulting with Morrison Knutson on some of their tunneling jobs. And George Yeomans brought him over to Hawaii. He was from the Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America. That's the story. Uh, yeah, it all happened at the Holly Kalani Hotel. We were hearing from Jim Gammon and Jim Murray, who guests on our show. That was a segment of an hour-long show that we devoted to the story of the building of the Red Hill Fuel Tank Farm. Did you know 17 people died building the tanks? And the project was actually underway at the time that Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And while many specialized workers like miners and tunnel experts were brought in, two-thirds of the workforce was hired locally. Many families today still have stories of their relatives who used to work at Red Hill. And that show is archived, and we invite you to check out the history on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Bank of Hawaii, celebrating its 125th anniversary. To everyone who has played a part in the bank's journey, a warm mahalo. Learn more at boh.com, member FDIC. This morning, local promoter Rick Bartolini made the first big concert announcement since the start of the pandemic. 80s boy band New Kids on the Block will be playing the Blaisdell Arena, along with the 90s hip-hop group TLC, later this year. The Conversations, Russell Subiano sat down this morning with Bartolini to find out how his business navigated the pandemic. Seems like the opportunity to bring back live events like concerts is now here. How do you feel about the timing? Is it too late? Is it right on track? Are you happy about where we are with being able to bring back concerts? Yeah, I'm happy about it for us anyway, because we're not really having any shows till August. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that people will feel more comfortable now that it's dropped and comfortable about buying tickets, knowing that the shows won't cancel Mm -hmm. and that they'll be safer, especially by August. And there is such a lead time, you know, to do it. So we had to have time to plan. So by the time we thought we'd be doing shows last year and then obviously with Omicron coming in. So this is it's great timing for us. Well, that's good to hear. When you're talking about lead time, I know we've talked to some other companies that are in the industry, and they also have reiterated that 
there's always a, a big lead time when it comes to planning something of this magnitude. During the pandemic, when we really couldn't have shows, we were already kind of gathering some events together and just kind of hoping the timing would work out. Yeah, I mean, we had hoped that there would be shows at the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, we didn't know what was to come. but So we have one show that was scheduled for December 2020. That'll be December of this year. Okay. So, But, you know, it takes a long time because you have to find someone that would like to come, negotiate the offer. Mm-hmm. That takes time. And then it takes lead time to, you know, plan the announcement and obviously sell tickets. So you're talking of upwards of six months to a year. The end of last year, you brought Bill Maher, Nikki Glaser to the state, and it seemed to work out pretty well. What was attendance like at the event? Was it a pretty good indicator of what interest was like for big events like this? Yes. I mean, Bill, it was our 10th anniversary, so we have a a built-in following for it. Mm -hmm. But obviously, Omicron was building at that time, and so sales were definitely down. And then we did have quite a number of people that did not show up, that had paid for tickets that didn't show up. Upwards of over 300 for Honolulu Mm -hmm. and for the small venue in Maui, about uh, 170. So that was was unfortunate. Um, But I was happy to do it, as was Bill. Yeah. (laughs) As you know, because you talked to him. Right. That's right. Dave Lawrence did a little piece for us that we aired on our show. And it was good to hear from him. It was good to hear about how he had been managing the pandemic. And speaking of, you know, navigating the pandemic, how was it for you? How was it for your business? How did you manage to stay afloat? I mean, honestly, you know, I was the only employee at the time. Mm -hmm. So I've been working since I was 14. So I hate to say it, but. It was a great break for me, the longest break I'd ever had, you know, so I hate to say that. I know a lot of people were suffering. I, in fact, went on unemployment for for a bit, but I enjoyed I watched every single Marvel movie. (laughs) 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 I think it was that kind of time for a lot of people. We've spoken to a couple of different business owners who took the time to kind of just take a breath. Yeah. from business. And then as things started changing and evolving, and as, as we could see how the future might shape up, I know some businesses made some adaptations to their process or their services or who they were marketing to. Were there any adaptations that you had to make? I mean, we just rethought the, the business model, mm-hmm. our commitment to the state, and we gave up operations in California and Oregon and officially moved everything here. And like you said, took a breath and reevaluated all kinds of um, business operations. Let's switch gears to to the big exciting news. I was pretty excited to know that such a big concert was coming up. New Kids on the Block are coming with their friends TLC, and New Kids haven't been here since 1991. Wow. So it's it's exciting. It's going to be a huge party, especially coming out of the pandemic yeah. when people want to gather again, especially here in Hawaii when it, when it's so much about communities. It's going to be just tons and tons of fun and yeah. reliving those memories. And, you know, their fans are in their 40s and 50s mm-hmm. now. And so, you know, going back, you know, 30 years, is just going to be, you know, so much fun for everybody. Yeah. The nostalgia is such a strong motivator for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. What was the reasoning for choosing these performers to headline that first concert coming out of the pandemic? You know, reliving memories, the fact that they had not been here for a long time, mm-hmm. which was, again, one of the things that we decided to do 
during the pandemic was to try to bring more people that haven't been here because, as you know, Hawaii doesn't get a lot of shows, which case in point, the guys reunited, you know, 10 years ago and they haven't been here and they've been touring every year, every other year. And then we wanted to make it just such a special event. So bringing in TLC, which was, you know, our doing Mm -hmm. uh, to put them both together. So um, not only do we want to do those those shows looking back of artists to bring back that nostalgia, but we also, one of the other decisions we made was to try to bring in artists that appeal to the younger demographic mm-hmm. that doesn't really get served here, you know, the sort of top 40 yeah. um, artists that are current. In recent years, there's been some issues with Hawaii residents being able to get tickets at the price that the tickets are selling for. In recent years, some scalpers have been able to buy up big blocks of tickets using technology. What's your strategy for being able to get tickets into local people's hands? Sure. Um, I mean, there was that big uproar the first time Bruno came after his, you know, sort of whirlwind success years ago when he played multiple nights at the Blaisdell. And there were were really no tickets for locals, of course, because of that technology where people around the world are buying these tickets for resale and then selling them for, you know, 10, 20 times the the value. Like we saw with Adele in Vegas, you know, they had tickets that were, you know, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 for a single ticket. And so that was a big wake up call for us. And and I get that promoters want to sell their tickets, but for us being here, I, I get that global promoters that 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 aren't here, that aren't on the state, they, they don't really care who gets the tickets as long as they sell the tickets. And then they are also, they get a piece of these resale tickets as well. And so it was really important for us to be the good guys here and to make sure that Hawaii residents do get those seats and for a fair price, because otherwise people are just going to give up and not come to shows. And I think that people have pulled back over the years. So the strategy that we've taken on over the years and and have been more aggressive about it is having these pre-sales where these ticket sales are, are what we call geofenced, and so you can't buy a ticket unless you have a, a Hawaii zip code that matches your credit card. And you know, some people you know slip in with some fake address, um, but we end up you know canceling those orders. I'm I'm pretty <laughs> severe about it. I'll I'll print out these reports that are you know a hundred pages and just sit there and go yeah. through with my highlighter. You know, and people say, well, why would you cancel those? It's money in the bank. I'm like, because it's not right. Yeah. It's not right. And we don't want to we don't want to have that. And again, we, we want people to, to know that they can go to Ticketmaster, which I know is 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 not everybody's favorite, but it is what it is. But to be able to go there and be confident that they can buy a ticket, you know, and which, you know, again, why we announced both of these shows at the same time, you know, sometimes you you, you know, uh, say it's going to be one night. We've done that. But so this gives puts, you know, 14,000 tickets available so people have a, a better opportunity, especially with a ticket limit and the presale to get get the seats they want. Rick, can you tell us again when tickets go on sale and when the concert is? 
Tickets go on sale Saturday at 10 o'clock for both shows, August 5th and 6th at the Blaisdell. There's no password required as long as you do have a credit card with a Hawaii zip code that matches your, you know, address. And that's going to be 24 hours. And then we open them up for sales anywhere in the world on Sunday at 10. New Kids on the Block plus TLC. Thanks so much for your time, Rick. Yeah, it's always great to see you guys. That was local promoter Rick Bartolini talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the first big concert on Oahu since the start of the pandemic. For more information on those tickets, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, committed to the health and safety of guests, welcoming Kama'aina and visitors, featuring sunset views from the re-envisioned pool deck. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com.